We're in a series at Neighborhood Church called The Grammar of Faith, where we take one word, one concept. Today is creation, and we talk about what this word means, vocab. We talk about grammar, how do you use it in your life, what, what difference does it make, and syntax, how does it connect to other things. It's a really fun series to preach. It's also a really challenging series. I was telling Helen this morning that like I have maybe 40, 45 minutes to say everything I can possibly say about creation. I had to cut a lot of stuff out. There's a lot you can say when it comes to the doctrine of creation. And so I want to get, hopefully, to the heart of it. To give you a heads up, um, the next four weeks, including today, we're going to kind of have a two-beat rhythm. One week positive, one week negative, one week positive, one week negative. Today's creation. Next week's sin. The next week is image of God. The next week is idolatry. Those will be our next four vocab words, and they're all connected to each other. I encourage you to keep Genesis 1 open. Um, always worth saying, um, I was just out of town for the last couple of days teaching on First Corinthians, and I had an opportunity with a bunch of college students to say this. Um, a lot of you know this, but as you read the Bible, as you get to know the Bible, one of my goals as a pastor is that all of us will get to know the scriptures better in the future. It's always helpful to know that the chapter and the verse numbers are not there originally, and already on the first page of the Bible, there is a terrible chapter break, because the first three verses of Genesis 2 clearly belong to the end of chapter 1, and chapter 2, verse 4 is actually where Genesis 2 should start, and so never trust the chapter breaks. They will often lead you astray. Um, they are not inspired. They are not there um, originally. They can be helpful in terms of memorizing things, remembering, but they will often give you the wrong impression. And so the doctrine of creation um, maybe raises a lot of questions. Some of you, if you're a Christian or not, and you're interested in Christianity, probably some of you have a lot of questions about science and about evolution and about stuff like that. Um, I'm actually going to argue. I would love for us to talk about those things another time. I actually think the doctrine of creation has much less to do with the kind of questions that modern science raises than we often think. Something I'm going to talk about in a minute is whereas modern science tends to look at not creation, but the world, the physical world, um, and ask questions of how and when, the doctrine of creation in scripture is much more focused on two other questions. Who did this and why? Who did this and why? We did not read the second creation story in Genesis 2, starting in chapter 2, verse 4. One of the most significant things to notice about why is there one creation story and then immediately followed by another creation story? One of the most significant things to notice is that the name used for God is different in the first creation story and the second creation story. In Genesis 1, it's Elohim, which in Hebrew is just a very generic word that everybody in the ancient world uses for God. And in Genesis 2, it's Yahweh. The name that God reveals to Israel when he gets them out of the Exodus. One of the most profound things Genesis 1 and 2 is saying is that the God who created everything is specifically the God who got Israel out of Egypt. That's the God who got who made everything. He's not a tribal God, he's not a local God, he's not part of the larger pantheon. That the God who rescued Israel from Egypt, and then we as Christians will say later on, became flesh in Jesus and died and rose again. That that's the God who in the beginning created everything. And I would say that probably for all of us, those of us who are more angsty and kind of dark and moody, a little more, but probably every single one of you at some point has asked the question, why do I exist? Why is there something rather than nothing? None of us, at least in our conscious memory, there's always been metaphysical speculations. Did anybody see the movie Soul by, was it Pixar, Disney a couple of years ago, where there's this almost like pre-conscious kind of state where disembodied souls kind of volunteer to go into existence and be created? I have certainly no memory of raising my hand and asking to be created. As a Christian, I don't think that's how it works. But I'll just say this, I'll talk about this later. One, when I did not grow up as a Christian, became a Christian in college, when I was in high school, I ran into, for the first time, encountered the, the existentialists, Sartre, Moo, Camus, all these guys. And one of the terms they used gave me language for how discombobulating being a human being in the world is. They talked about the thrownness of existence. That we wake up one day and we are thrown into the world against our consent, at least without our consent, and given no instructions, and we just have to figure out what's going on, that the doctrine of creation has something to do with this. Um, on the other hand, I'll get into this in a bit, the doctrine of creation is not there in the Christian story, say, unlike the doctrine of redemption or, or the doctrine of resurrection of afterlife, 
you might think that the doctrine of creation, you start with your perception of the world, you start with evidence and you build up. But according to Hebrews 11, and I'll just read this, you can turn there if you want, here are the first three verses of Hebrews 11, which is the great chapter on the heroes of faith. And before any of the individual characters in the Old Testament are mentioned, we're given this initial statement, definition of faith. Now, faith is the assurance of things that are hoped for. It's the conviction of things you can't see. Because by it, all the people of old, from Genesis to Malachi, receive their commendation. And in the first story that we're told is connected to faith, is by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And so I just want to start with this. You might not be a Christian. You might disagree if you are a Christian with the way I go with this. But the doctrine of creation, as much as any other doctrine, is revealed to us and not deduced by common sense. It is not obvious that we live in a world that was created by someone. I do believe that, but I do not believe that because I've deduced that from my experience of the world. I believe that because I believe the creator has revealed that to us. And so the doctrine of creation is as much as any other doctrine, a, a, a truth that God has revealed to us. One of the things I'm going to contend later on and commend to you is that if you want to understand the world we live in and what we're doing here on the one hand don't look within don't navel gaze at your own experience your own experience will not give you any clues to what's going on don't look around you at other people in the cultures around you don't look back to previous moments in history look up to the creator to understand creation and to understand who we are as creatures we must understand the creator and so here are two initial observations some to just help us give a framework for the next few minutes, also to be a bit provocative and maybe get your attention. Um, here's the first one. Create, at least from one very real perspective, creation is more important than either sin or salvation in the Christian faith. Here's, here's let me give an analogy. Now, I just said from one perspective. From another perspective, you could argue that sin is the most important because it ruins creation and because the reason we need to be saved from you know, from the beginning, and then obviously you could say in some ways salvation is the most important. Um, there's a triad of theological virtues that, that Christians kind of see as our version of the cardinal virtues in the ancient world, faith, hope, and love. And if you look at all the passages in the New Testament where faith, hope, and love are talked about, some passages emphasize that faith is the most important of those. Some passages emphasize that hope is the most important of those. And some passages emphasize that love is the most important. It just depends on what vantage point you're looking at. There is at least one very important sense in which creation is more important than either sin or salvation in the Christian faith. And in the sense, sin understood rightly, which we're going to do next week, is just decreation, uncreation. And salvation is just recreation, new creation. Which means this, if you misunderstand what is going on in creation, you are guaranteed to misunderstand sin and guaranteed to misunderstand salvation. You cannot skip over this. One of the things I'm going to work into this sermon, some of you might be a little annoyed at this. I, I try not to do it too often, although I probably do do it too much. Um, I'm going to argue that if you understand the doctrine of creation, it has bearings on how you grapple with all of the calls from the left and the right, conservatives and liberals, to give yourself allegiance to different ideologies. And this is a very broad generalization, but I think it's generally true conservatives who have an instinct to lean towards conservative explanations tend to start with sin and liberals tend to start with grace and both of them regularly go astray because they misunderstand creation and so i'm going to come back to this as we go but at the very least for now i'll just say you cannot understand either sin or grace if you don't understand creation creation is underneath both of those things the second thing I want to say is that I already mentioned that I don't think creation is primarily about scientific questions. I don't think it's primarily about questions of origins or speculative metaphysics. I would say if I had to put in, in, in just a phrase, what is the doctrine of creation about? I would say it's this. It's about helping us get our bearings for what's going on. It's helping you get a sense of, am I right side up? Am I upside down? Um, but like, what am I here for? Who am I? What am I here to be and to do? What's going on in the world? The doctrine of creation is there to help us get our bearings. 
And so let's look at Genesis 1. I, I want to make a couple of comments about it. For some of you, my comments might be something that you've known for a long time. For others of you, it, it will probably be new. If it's new for you, this will be fun. There'll be some aha moments here. A couple of things about Genesis 1, and then I'm just going to make three arguments about the doctrine of creation, about what it's doing in the Christian faith. Now, not everyone agrees with this, and, and ultimately, none of my points hang on it. But I'm convinced that Genesis 1-1, very, very famous statement, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, is not sequentially the first move in the chapter, but is the title to the rest of the chapter. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth is a summary of what 1-2 through 2-3 tells us, that that whole process is, in the beginning, God creating the heavens and the earth. Uh, I'll do this a little today. In the future, if I live long enough, I will certainly come back to this somewhat frequently. I wish that the second verse of Genesis 1 was as well known as the first verses, because it plays an incredibly important role, both in the creation story as well as in the rest of the biblical story. And yet it's weird. The earth was without form and void. It was shapeless and it was empty. That is... There was darkness, there's no light yet, but there is darkness over the face of the deep. So there's waters there, and the Spirit of God is hovering, getting ready to start moving over the face of the waters. Do you ever read the Psalms? I want you to notice that darkness and water are the two great negative imageries in Scripture. That darkness is often allied to death. Think of Psalm 88. Darkness is my only friend, and water is the element of chaos. You feel pretty safe when you're on land. If you're a city kid, you might like going to the, the city pool, you know, in the summer. But if you're in the ancient world, you know that tsunamis come from the sea. You know that people drown in water. Water is an incredibly dangerous element. And so the beginning of the story is not so much nothing as much as it is chaos, that is that, that what's going on in the world at the beginning before God completes creation is that it is uninhabitable. It's not a good place for anything, let alone for humans. It's not ready to be a home. And here's what I want you to notice. There are always questions that are raised. Why six days? Why not one day? Why not one moment? Why not like millions of years? Like why six days? And I obviously, just to say it explicitly, I don't know everything about why God does what he does. I don't even know most things about why God does what he does. But here are some things that are easy to miss. The first three days are one set, and the second three days are another set. And the second set of three days, days four through six, parallel days one through three. So day one and day four are correlated. Day two and day five are correlated. Day three and day six are correlated. I want you to notice this. This will uh, kind of like, I'm not going to do this to embarrass anybody. Even if you grew up in the church, if I ask you, can you tell me the Ten Commandments in order? I'll bet that the majority of people in here wouldn't get all ten in order. But if I asked you, what does God create on each of the six days, I would get a lot of blank stares. Um, this will help you. And by the way, it's not all that important. But this will help you remember it and to have a sense of what's going on as God organizes and structures creation. On day one, there's darkness, and God separates, he speaks light into it, and then he separates day from night. So day one, God creates the day and the night. If you bring a modern scientific perspective to this, what's the obvious question? Dude, the sun's not even created until day four. How can there be light already? You're asking wrong questions. It's not what's going on here. Um, that's an adventure and missing the point. Day one, he creates the day and the night. This is already darkness. He speaks light into existence and then he separates light and darkness so that there's now day and night. On day two, he separates the waters above from the waters below, which is the sky and the sea. So on day two, the sky and the sea are created. And on day three, land appears in the midst of the sea and now there's land. And so notice that at the end of day three, the world is still void. Creation is still empty, but it's not formless anymore. And now has shape. There's now water and land. There's now sky and sea. There's now day and night that there's shapes. Not all darkness all the time. It's not all water all the time. There's now shape. Day four, what does he create? The sun and the moon. And very explicitly, we are told the sun and the moon are created to rule over the day and the night from day one. And so the, the logic, very clearly, once you see it, is that days one through three, God creates realms that have shape 
in days four through six, he creates rulers to inhabit those realms and rule over them. He creates the sun and the moon to rule over the day and the night. If on day two, he created the sky and the sea, you should be able to guess what does he create in day five? Birds and fish to rule over the sky and to rule over the sea. Then on day six, he creates the land animals, all the different kinds, cattle, creeping things, all the weird stuff you see in the world on the land with us, he creates. And he also creates us as human beings on day six, although you can see starting in verse 26, kind of shifts into poetry rather than prose, where in one sense set apart from other things, even land animals, and in another sense were included in the land animals. In day six, human beings are like animals and unlike animals at the same time, according to creation. And in each of these uh, latter three days, God creates inhabitants to rule over the realms that were created on days one through three. And so if at the end of day one through three, the earth is no longer without form. At the end of days four through six, it's no longer void. It's no longer empty. And so Genesis 1-2, the earth is without form and void, is the problem that the rest of the chapter solves. It's the problem that is overcome in the six days. And every stage along the way, you heard it as it was read by Jerry and by Laura. I'm sure you've noticed before. At every stage, God stops and says, it's good. It's good. It's good. This is better than what was there before. And at the very end, it is very good. And God rests on the seventh day. Human beings are there. Um, let me just say a couple of things. We will do image of God in two weeks. So I'm not going to get ahead. We'll come back to Genesis 1, 26 to 28 in two weeks. But I'll say two things about human beings right now. And I might come back very briefly later to make a comment about how um, we don't know creation except through God's revelation. And so both conservatives and liberals often misconstrue what's going on in the world unless we start by faith. Here, the human beings are, in one sense, created like land animals to be on the land, not the sea, not the sky, not the, moon, not the, you know, not the heavens like the sun and the moon. In another sense, human beings are set apart, not just in the sense that it goes to poetry, but in that human beings are given dominion over not just the land, but also the sky and the sea. Also, the day and the night, and also the inhabitants of the other three days. And so whereas the sun and the moon only rule over the day and the night, and whereas the fish only rule over the sea and the birds only rule over the heavens, human beings rule over all the other rulers and all the other realms. Human beings are given dominion over all of what is done. In Genesis uh, 1 and in days 1 through 6, it is for later on, some of you have heard me say this before, I think this unlocks something that, for instance, C.S. Lewis saw this, but most Christians never see this. That when the early Christians called Jesus crucified and risen, Lord over all, it is almost inevitable that in Western Christianity, Christians hear an indirect, maybe religiously more polite way of saying, Jesus is really God. And you see, you know, I did one of these on the Doctrine of the Trinity like a month ago. I do believe Jesus is God. But when the early church said Jesus is Lord over all, they were not making a statement about his divinity. They were saying, finally, somebody is here doing the Genesis 1, 26 through 28 thing. Jesus is playing the role in creation that all of us were supposed to play from the beginning. The original job description of humanity is Lord over all. And because of sin, we don't do that. And so Jesus comes in to use the Apostle Paul's language as the second Adam to become what human beings were supposed to be in the beginning. None of that is obvious. None of that is obvious. Whether it's like Psalm 8, like, Lord, when I look at the heavens and I look at the vastness and the scope of the universe, you would think that we're as significant in the universe as an anthill is to us. And yet, even though you can't get there empirically, human beings are, to use C.S. Lewis's great phrase, the kings and queens of Narnia. You are royalty. If you are a human being, you were great. And guys, I know some of you might be narcissists or megalomaniacs. So <laughs> down you guys were created to rule the universe. That's, that's what you're here for. That's what human beings are here for, which is why when human sin comes on the scene, it screws everything up. And so let me make three deductions from the creation story here. I'll, I'll make a couple of side swipes at, at Psalm 104 along the way, but I'll mostly stay in Genesis 1 today. Here's the first one is that creation is out of nothing. Um, that is that God doesn't 
It, creation is not eternal. It's not there forever. God doesn't, as Hebrews 11 says, this is implied here, God doesn't start from pre-existing materials. He doesn't need a help from other gods that in Romans 4, in Hebrews 11, throughout Judaism and Christianity, that God creates out of nothing. Um, and, and so it obviously raises all kinds of questions, like what was God doing before he created the world? And was there a certain amount of time that God had just to himself, his Father, Son, Holy Spirit, before he brought us in? Like some of you will get married someday, and you'll maybe want a couple of years before you bring kids along. Is that kind of like before creation was like for God? And I'll just say, following Augustine, um, but maybe a little more toned down to him, I have no idea. Um, Augustine, he's, he's, Augustine I love overall, and so I, 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 I think he was saying this with a smirk, but Augustine has a famous statement that some of you have heard before. Whenever he gets questions like that, like what was God doing before he created the world, his answer was always creating hell for people who ask questions like that. Um, I don't think that's true. I assume he said that with a smirk, but I think that the thrust of that answer is the right one. You have no capacity to answer questions like this, and so why even try to argue, or why even try to posit that. In Romans 4, which you don't need to turn to, Paul compares two other things to God creating the universe out of nothing, justifying the ungodly and raising the dead out of cemeteries. What all three of these acts have to do is that God doesn't start from something that's already there and improve it. He summons something that had no existence before this moment. Justifying the ungodly is not a moral improvement process. Raising people from the dead, a lot of you are doctors or are going to be doctors. You guys have no capacity to raise the dead than anybody else. This is not something that you can start from what's there. And so we are cre created out of nothing. Um, there are a lot of implications for that. There is thankfulness and gratitude. There's Maybe we'll get a time to do it during the sermon. If not, I do plan to come back to this as one of our sermon vocab words later on. Um, we'll just say for now, probably for many of you, this phrase, which is obviously very central in scripture, but is both, I think, a, a subject of great ignorance and ambiguity, but even negativity, like it's hard not to, not to recoil when I say it, is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is a concept that is connected to creation. It's not a concept that's connected to sin. You might think fear of the Lord is something sinners now need to do because God is holy and we're not, but fear of the Lord is a creature posture towards the creator. We would have done it before sin. We will still do it after sin in the life of the world to come. And so the fear of the Lord is, to be honest, probably an experience that on some maybe more basic secular level, if you ever, I, I know I'm a weirdo in this, and it's probably humanly speaking, one of the reasons I'm here as a pastor today, when I was seven or eight years old, some of my most vivid memories are laying on my bed. It, me and my two brothers are all in this small bedroom. I'm on the top bunk of a bunk bed. Two in the morning, three in the morning, I'm wide awake. I'm staring into the darkness into the ceiling and thinking there are only two possible explanations. Either when I die, I will cease to exist, or when I die, I will exist forever. And both of those seem terrifying. And I think that's a fear of the Lord moment. A sense that I didn't sign up for this. I can't sign up to get out of it, and I have no control over what the ultimate explanation is, that there's something about being a creature that is connected to this, that God summons us the way he summons everything else. And so, in scripture, because God creates out of nothing, this tends to be very seen very negatively in Western contemporary culture, but uh, conclusions, implications of our dependence on God, God's ownership of us, our belonging to God, our deductions that are made here. First Corinthians 6, I, I often like to say that a lot of people in, both in the church and outside the church tend to think today the most offensive things that Christians historically hold is stuff connected to sex and gender. And I always say, yes, that is offensive today. That is increasingly out of step. But the most offensive thing Christians believe in light of modern Western mores is First Corinthians 6, you are not your own. You were created by God. And you were redeemed by God. And so you are not your own. You do not belong to yourself. And it is your obligation to glorify God with your existence. I think that's the most out-of-step principle that Christians hold about what it means to be a human being. Um, ultimately, one of the things that, that you'll, you'll hear me say in the months and years to come, Lord willing, I, one of the real changes for me maybe in the last six or seven years of my own life is actually begun to not just acknowledge, but actually enjoy that I am a creature, 
But it is good news that we are creatures. It's good news that we need to go to sleep at night. It's good news that we get hungry and we have to eat. It's good news that we have limits. It's good news that we're not omnipotent and omniscient, that we're fragile, that we're weak, that we're vulnerable. We spend a lot of our energy and our culture resisting those things, trying to get away from those things, trying to deny those things, but it's actually good that we are creatures. Um, and so a couple of questions that you see in scripture, let me just throw some out to you. And one thing you might do, you can listen to this later on, you can write it down now, you can come up and ask me later, email me. Here are some questions I would encourage you, for some of you this might be helpful, to type them out or write them out, put them on your refrigerator and remind yourself of these questions every once in a while. In the book of Job, Elihu, I'm going to come back to Job in just a bit, very briefly. Elihu is the final character, the young Jewish guy who shows up in Job at the end, after Job's three idiotic friends are done, after Job is done. And, and Elihu, I think, is a good character. I think he's a wise character in the book. And he asks Job a question that Job and his three friends are assuming a different answer to. And just says to Job, Job, if you are righteous, what do you give to God? Like, do you think this is like a bargain? But like, God is like, thank you so much for obeying my commands. I was really in trouble running the universe until you did that. I, I really owe you one, pal. Thank you for getting me off the hook. That, that when we relate to God as if our obedience or disobedience becomes the central drama of the universe, we are misunderstanding what's going on. In Job 41, God himself asked a question to Job that the Apostle Paul will quote later on in Romans, when he says, who has ever given a gift to me that I should be repaid? Who has ever given a gift to me that I should be repaid? And the answer to that is nobody. Um, C.S. Lewis has a great fleshing out of that in mere Christianity when he says, anybody who thinks they're serving God, who, who's really focused on, I, I'm more moral than other people. I've done, I, I've been responsible with my existence. Look at like the older brother looking at the prodigal son who does that. It, it C.S. Lewis says, here's what's going on. It's like a child a day before Christmas coming to their dad and mom and saying, dad, I really want you to buy a present. Can I have 10 bucks to go down to the store? The dad pulls 10 bucks out of his wallet. The kid goes down the street, buys a present. Only an idiot thinks the father is receiving something that he did not have before. That's not what this relationship is about. We are created out of nothing. We are dependent on God. God is not dependent on us. We, God owns us. We do not own God. We belong to him by right. He belongs to us by choice. Um, this is a really important thing. And in 1 Corinthians 4, Paul says to the Corinthians, who's, he asked this question, two-pronged question, who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that you did not receive? Any moment of arrogance in your life, any moment of self-pity that somebody else is not noticing you or that God is not coming through, assumes that you have contributed something that you did not first receive. And the doctrine of creation rules that out. The doctrine of creation reminds us that we are creatures and so in Psalm 95, in Psalm 100, when we are summoned to worship, one of the reasons we are summoned to worship is that the Lord, he has made us, we have not made ourselves. That worship should be a response to knowing that you have been created by God. The second thing, and this needs to be balanced, because some of you might already be like, if not bothered, you might be like, ah, that sounds like we're one step away from saying God can be a dictator, that God can be a tyrant, that God can be a toxic, abusive person, and we can't say anything about it because he's the creator. And so the second thing that Genesis reminds us of is that creation is good. It's not God, but it is good. Throughout history, and, and specifically throughout Christian history, there have always been individuals in movements that rise up that their strongest, most fundamental intuition is that there's something wrong with the world. But that's the main thing to say about the world, and specifically about the physical world. Augustine, before he became a Christian, was a Manichee, who the Manichaeans thought that good and evil were eternal dualisms, and that the bad evil God was just as responsible for the world we live in as the good God is. Marcion was a guy, a Gentile, who became a Christian and said, the God of the Old Testament, he's nasty, he's wrathful, he's angry, and he's the one that created the world. But the God of Jesus, he's a different God, and he came on the scene later on. But creation belongs to the bad God. 
not the good God. Pantheists who think the world just is God. Gnostics who think, like Plato, this famous language, and Christians sometimes use it, but we never should, that your body is a prison that your soul needs to escape from. That the world is a prison that we need to escape from the middle of an afterlife. I love to say this. We did this a bit last week at Easter. We'll do it more in the future. Christians do not believe in the immortality of the soul. They believe in the resurrection of the body and the life of the world to come. That creation is good. It is good that you have a body. It is good that you are whatever race and gender and personality type on the Enneagram that you are. It is good that all of the awkward things of being human, like having to eat and then go to the bathroom, like having to sleep, all of those things are in themselves good. None of those things. Culture in itself is good. Sleeping in itself is good. Work. Having a lot of you when the alarm clock goes off tomorrow morning, you're going to be like, I wish I could just stay in bed. And, and if you wrote a creation story, work would either be intrinsically evil or a result of the fall. And by the way, Either when you get older and you retire, or you go through a season when you lose your job or there's just COVID, is you will realize really quickly that you are miserable without work to do. Work is good. It is good that we have things to do in creation. And so there's always this instinct that something is wrong with the physical world we live in. One of the great atheist writers of the last half century, Douglas Adams, um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Remember that one? It's a good movie too. This is from the restaurant at the end of the universe. He was a really funny guy. But ultimately, he thought the universe was meaningless, that that life was just futile and absurd. And, and he's got a statement in this book, The Restaurant at the End of the Universe. It's almost his atheist, absurdist take on creation. And it just says this. The story so far, in the beginning, the universe was created. But this has made a lot of people very angry and have been widely regarded as a bad news. <laughs> as a bad news. That the, the creation story in Genesis, it's an affirmation of the world. It's an affirmation of everything that has been created in the world. We'll talk about this with sin next week. Sin is a, a mystery in so many ways. Where did it come from? What is it? But the dominant take in the Christian tradition, I think rightly so, is that evil is understood most basically a no thing. It is not only not created by God, it doesn't have any independent substance. It's a parasite on good. It's a misuse of beauty. It's a distortion of what is positive. It doesn't have any traction by itself. Everything that exists understood rightly is good. Now, because of sin, it's always misused. It's always distorted. It's always not the way it's supposed to be. But everything in and of itself is good. I'm going to do this in two minutes because I think it's so profound for us to know this. Um, this is ultimately what the book of Job is about. The book of Job, I think I even mentioned last week, it is for a number of years now been my favorite book of the Bible. It is unbelievably simple and unbelievably complex and profound at the same time. And let me just say, this will maybe encourage some of you to want to go read the book of Job in the near future. Here's the way I start teaching on the book of Job. The book of Job is not about God, and it's not about Job. The book of Job is not about God. And it's not about Job. What I mean by that is you don't learn anything about God, his attributes, what he's like in the book of Job. You know some from somewhere else. You don't learn anything about Job or human beings. You don't learn anywhere else. But here's the key to the book of Job. Job and the prose of the first two chapters is in the world. And he's enjoying life. Life is really good. And he seems to fear God. And he does. We're not supposed to see through that skeptically. He does. He fears God. He honors God. He relates rightly both to God and into his neighbor, and everything comes undone for him. His children are killed. His physical health goes down the drain. He has chronic health issues for the foreseeable future. And by the way, at the end of the book, we're not actually told that Job is healed physically. We usually hear that implicitly. I'm not actually sure that that's true. And so Job is like he loses all of his money. He loses his reputation. His own spouse encourages him to curse God and die. And the key to the book of Job is in two places. The first speech of Job in Job 3, and in God's speech to Job at the end of the book. And Job 3 is not the first speech with the friends. It's a monologue to God. And I would encourage you to look at it. It is a creation story in reverse. Job says, with respect to the day I was born many decades ago, I wish God had shown up on that day and said, let there be darkness. And I wish that all the birds had fled away. 
and all the fish had swam away. And I wish there was no human being there because I have no rest. I have no rest. I have no rest. Job walks through the seven days of creation and undoes them and says, I wish God had never done this. Now, he's literally just saying, I want to die. He's also saying, I wish I'd never been born. But he's also saying, my story is an insight into the whole thing. And my story shows it is Douglas Adams' right is a mistake that God created the universe. It is a mistake that God created the universe. Every speech from then on out, Job 4 to the end of the book by Job, is either defending that posture, given suffering and evil, it would have been better if God had never created the world. Or Job's three friends arguing against that, or Elihu doing whatever Elihu does, which is complicated, and then God's speech at the ancient whirlwind cannot be understood unless it's seen as God's response to Job's claim. And when I say the book of Job is not about God, it's not about Job, we know what does God do at the end of the story? He takes Job on a cosmic tour of the universe, and he shows them what the world is like. He shows them weather elements, he shows them creation elements, the sea, he shows them all these animals, and by the way, God has two speeches to Job at the end of the book, and they track with the two sets of days in Genesis 1, that in the first speech, God shows Job all the realms and elements of creation, in the second speech, he shows them all the inhabitants of creation, but he shows them all the wild elements, he shows them storms and ice and hurricanes and see, and he shows them scary animals that can't be domesticated and that are threatening to human beings. And the end of the book of Job is ultimately an argument, not about God, not about Job, although there's implications for both, that the rip off a great line from C.S. Lewis, that like its creator, you need to know this about creation. It is not safe, but it is good. That the world is good. And that suffering, while I can call that into question, that's not true. And at the end, I want to read this, and then I'll end with it in just a few moments. I, when I thought about this during the week, I even thought, oh, I wish I would have thought about this ahead of time, so I could have asked the worship team to lead us in this at the end of the service. Mozart wrote a really famous um, symphony that has a movement in it called Ode to Joy. That is one of the most joyful pieces of music, at least to me, I've ever heard. And there are lyrics written to it that were not written by Mozart, but somebody else much later on. And one of the lyrics to this incredibly joyful piece of music is a line from Job 38. Job, when God speaks to Job out of the whirlwind and shows him creation, God asks Job a series of questions. And the first question is, is Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you must know. Who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? Now, when you start hearing those questions, there's a huge temptation by modern people to hear God as being condescending. Like, okay, smarty pants, tell me if you understand this better than me. But I don't think God is doing that. What God is doing is he's pointing out that Job and his friends all assume that they know much more about the world than they actually do. And in every question, God is pointing out something about the world that they missed. And here's the first one. Job, when I created the world, were you there? Do you know how I did this? Do you know why it's like this? And then the final thing he says to the key to this opening question, or what words, on what words basis some who laid his cornerstone, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. That is, the moment that creation came into existence, the initial original response to it was a language connected to worship in Israel's temple. People shouted, the angels shouted for joy. There, it made the greatest rock concert or NBA playoff game ever seem lame. Like the universe exploded in joy. And there's the, the final stanza of Mozart's Ode to Joy when it's put the, the lyrics in Joyful, Joyful, We Adore Thee is mortals join the happy chorus that the morning stars began. And that's what Job is invited to. And the end of the book of Job is Job chooses to go back in the world. The end of the book of Job is not resurrection. It's not happily ever after. It's not a fairy tale. Job's children do not come back from the dead. The world is not transformed or changed at all yet. And yet Job chooses to have kids again. Because his view of the world has changed. Not because he thinks these kids might not die too. Not because he thinks anything is safe now. But because he knows suffering is misunderstood if we deduce from it that creation is not good. I would just love for you to hear this. It is good that you are alive right now. 
it is good that you are here. It is good that you exist. It is good that you exist in this world. One of the most basic responses to the doctrine of creation ought to be that Christians are not only, not even necessarily mainly, and at least in certain seasons, but that we are a culture of celebration and joy. That we throw a lot of parties. That we just enjoy the world that God gave us because it is good. And so I'm going to end with that in a minute, but I'm going to say this, going to Psalm 104, when the psalmist looks at creation, what he looks at is every animal, every weather element, not just humans, that creation is a home that is fit for them. You guys know that up there, that's where the goats, that over there, that's where the rock badgers, that over there, that's where the scary monsters, that over there, that's where volcanoes, volcanoes have a place in creation. The next time a volcano explodes, if you explain it away to your non-Christian friends by saying that happened because you cheated on your taxes, you're misunderstanding how creation works. Natural disasters, even though it's a long tradition among Christians to distinguish moral evil and natural evil, natural evil is misnomer. There is no natural evil. Natural evil can become something that we experience negatively. It can become something that's problematic, but the only thing that is evil in and of itself is human rebellion against God. And that ultimately infects the rest of creation. Last thing about creation being good, and I'll make my final point. Um, this will, will come back to a lot of practical stuff here, but also in sermons to come, just in the Christian life. When God says in Genesis 1, it is good, it is good, it is good. Take that seriously. God takes delight in creation. Everything God created is good. But do not hear that as God saying it is perfect. That's not the statement. And here's what I mean by that. Even before humans fall into sin, God says it's not good that man is alone. Something's not right about creation still, even before sin. Even before creation, God gives humans a task to subdue the earth, which assumes that there's going to be resistance and that things need to be changed. To put it this way, the doctrine of creation is a, sees the world not just as a home, but as a starter home. Creation has potential that we are called to unfold. Creation has potential that we are called to develop into culture. Culture is not a result of the fall, and it wasn't already there. Culture and, and developing creation is a task that humans are given. If any of you have ever heard Tim Keller speak, you've maybe heard him say, it's one of his major themes, that it is not a result of sin that where his story starts in a garden ends in a city. That was always the goal. And so this might seem abstract. I hope it's not. I think it's one of the most profound things you can know about the doctrine of creation. Whatever sin does to creation, to undo it, to decreate it, however salvation recreates the world, the future of the world in a Christian perspective, yes, is this, but it's more than this, that, that you have to say two things about creation with respect to where it's going in the future. Then on the one hand, and this one's more, I think, understood among most Christians, that in the future, God will restore creation to what it once was, but no longer is. That he will remove sin and death from it. But that's not enough to just say that, because if you just say that, it makes it seem like we're in the Garden of Eden forever. The future of creation is that the world will also, by God's power, by God's grace, become something for the first time ever that it has never yet been. And creation is heading in both directions. Just want you to know, so I'll get here in just a second. The, the conservative instinct is to say, we're losing something right now that was better in the past. Let's hold on. And that's an instinct Christians need to have. The liberal instinct is right now the status quo sucks and we need to advance to something that's not there yet. And that is also a Christian instinct. That the world needs to be restored to something it once was that no longer is. And it needs to become something that it has never yet been. And so if you ask, should I be a conservative, should I be a liberal? There's not an easy, straightforward answer to that as a Christian. And so third thing, I'll, I'll come back to that in, in just a moment at the end. This is, I think, the most unpopular one, but so important for us, and ultimately good that, that our culture really encourages us the other way, is that creation, when you see it, the six days of creation, Psalm 104, God has made a place for all these creatures. That creation is about structure and about order. And about organization. Here's a way to put it. When Christians talk about creation, Oliver O'Donovan has a great line here. They're not just talking about the physical stuff the world is made out of. Creation and a Christian understanding is the whole result of Genesis 1, 2 to 2, 3. 
that is creation that has morning and evening, that has sea and land. What God is doing over and over in creation is he's separating things and he's distinguishing things. And he's saying this belongs over here and that belongs over there. In a few minutes when we're done with the service, when you leave, you're free to try it. But if you are wise, I would encourage you to try to leave through the door and not try to walk through the wall. Because creation before you and apart from you has an order that wisdom means. Perceive it, respond to it. Don't try to impose your will on it. That is true morally as much as it is physically of the universe. And so to use biblical language of distinctions, to use really controversial language today, of binaries. Binaries and distinctions are built into creation. Day and night, light and darkness, heaven and earth. Creator and creature. Idolatry is confusing creator and creature. Humans and animals. Living creatures with breath, inanimate objects. Sky and sea, water and land, male and female, right and wrong, good and evil, health and sickness, normal and abnormal, obedience and sin. Those things are there prior to our subjectivity. And let me mention real quick two categories. I try to do this in this series to connect with other things. Here are two massive categories in scripture, one of which we are maybe a little embarrassed by or don't know what to do with. The other one we misunderstand and make it too generic. Holiness and wisdom are both descriptions of human beings who know what to do with creation. In Leviticus, in Leviticus 10, the priests are given their job description is to teach the people of Israel to separate and distinguish what is clean from what is unclean. It is the same verb that is used to God over and over in Genesis 1. Holiness is walking through the world, respecting the distinctions that God has made. Unholiness is mixing things that God has already separated. Isaiah the prophet gives, I think, the great prophetic woe to human sinners, which is all of us. But she says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. These things exist before us. God has already named them. And holiness is walking, respecting those distinctions. Wisdom is both the perception and the skill to conform your subjectivity to the objectivity that is there, rather than to walk through the world trying to remake it in the image of your own desires. C.S. Lewis has a great book in the Chronicles of Narnia called The Magician's Nephew, and it's all about this. And if anybody knows this book, you might remember, or you can read it and never really connect the dots, that the magician in The Magician's Nephew is Uncle Andrew. And Uncle Andrew is not a magician. He's a scientist. And C.S. Lewis loved to point out that modern people, especially secular modern people, love to think that science is the opposite of what magic was in, in the ancient world. But it's actually our version of magic. It's, it's the, the, the striving to make the world objectively something that fits our subjective desires. Wisdom is the um, commitment to discover what is there and to bend ourselves to it rather than to impose on it what our desires are. Wisdom and holiness are creational categories. Augustine regularly talks about without the creator, we not just lose the creator, we also lose creation and we lose our own creatureliness. You cannot understand creation and you cannot understand who you are and what you are as a creature. C.S. Lewis's language, if you get rid of first things, you not only lose first things, you lose second things eventually too. That's all there. Friedrich Nietzsche, much more intelligent than I am, much more brilliant, said human beings find nothing in this apathetic, meaningless, purposeless cosmos than what they put there themselves. Nietzsche, much more intelligent than I am, ultimately immoral. That is quite literally the definition of foolishness in scripture. Creation and wisdom in creation is in Proverbs 8. I'm going to encourage you to look at this. God creates wisdom. God creates the world by wisdom. And wisdom is like an architect that God comes up with a blueprint for. Wisdom is knowing how it's laid out as a house and walking through it in light of the architect's original designs. 
And so ultimately, you cannot just start with sin. With whatever bothers me culturally, I'm going to call that sin. And you can't say grace. Whatever affirms my desires as they are, that's grace. You have to start with creation to understand either category. It is, I think, one of the great losses in our culture, both on the right and the left, that we so often lose adoption of creation. So let me say two things to, to end just as implications. At some point, I'll have to come back to this, but I can today. Maybe the most radical thing the New Testament says here about creation isn't that it was added nothing. We already knew that. Isn't even that God's going to recreate it. We already knew that in the Old Testament. It's that when God created the world in the Old Testament, he used wisdom as the blueprint. The New Testament gets more specific. And the New Testament says the blueprint was Jesus. If you know Jesus, you know the mystery underneath anything, everything else. When God created the world, the son of God, Jesus, the future human, the eternal son of God. And, and, and the story you read in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that's what it looks like to walk through creation the way God intends to walk, humans to walk through creation. Jesus is the wisdom of God. He is the one through whom God created. He is the one for whom God created. That ultimately, if you want to understand creation, don't look inside. Don't look around you. Don't look back. Look up, but also look at Jesus, and you will understand what God's purposes for creation are. As Karl Barth said, creation is grace. It is it's a gift that, that we exist. And like all forms of God's grace, unlike what Bonhoeffer criticizes cheap grace, all forms of grace are simultaneously a gift and a task, a privilege and a responsibility. You might say, I didn't sign up for this. Even if you're a secular atheist, we got this thing called the social contract. You're signed up for things whether you want to or not. There is no universe where you're not signed up for things. If you are a creature, which you are, you are signed up to bear God's image, to love him with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, to love your neighbor as yourself. And so here at the end, and, and it's not the most important one because I think this more than anything, it's always been true. When I became a Christian, I really am going to do this in two minutes. When I became a Christian 25 years ago, I was in North Carolina in the Bible Belt. I'd grown up secular liberal here in the Northeast, and I loved the Christian community as a part of, and it just was so, um, what's the right word? It was disturbing, but it was also mystifying to me the attraction to the Republican Party by all of these Southern Christians. I just did not understand Jesus and no gun control. Jesus and a history of racism, Jesus and all this other stuff, and I did not understand that. For those of you who are 30 or younger, I would plead with you. You are right to critique that. I would plead with you not to think that if you jump in bed with the left, that it will be any different. And so if you ask me, should I be a liberal? Should I be a conservative? Should I be a Democrat? Should I be a Republican? Here's the answer I'm going to give you as a pastor. I'm going to say three things. You should be both. You should be neither. And you should be something else entirely. And let me walk through it. You should be both in that if every instinct you have is conservative, you will constantly walk through creation wrong. Because where we are right now is not just we need to go back to something that went wrong. It is we need to go forward to something that's never yet happened. If every instinct you have is conservative, you will make mistakes all the time. If every instinct you have is liberal, progress, transgression, moving into new territory, you will constantly make mistakes. Because something is there from the beginning that was lost, and that sets the standard for what we do now and for where we go. And so you need to be both, and wisdom is knowing which and when you need to be either of those instincts. But if you are just always conservative or always liberal, you are going to be making a lot of mistakes in this world that God created. You also need to be neither. Here's what I mean. And feel free to, uh, to write me some nasty emails afterwards. <laughs> I, I hope I get some from the right and the left. Um, if you need my email, it is ChristopherKim at gmail. <laughs> send, send me your email afterwards. I would love to read what you have to say. You should be neither. What I mean by this is that if you do everything the Republican Party asks of you, you will be faithless to Jesus. If you do everything the Democratic Party asks you to do, you will be faithless to Jesus. You need to be ready to say no to both of these movements, both of these instincts. There are moments where you can't be either. Let me give a couple of examples. It is embedded in the history of, two things that are embedded in the history of conservative movements is racism and patriarchy. Because when you start from your own experience, you think, well, like this group seems to be doing better right now than that group. 
That's obviously how God created the world. We're supposed to rule over them. God has blessed us, not them. Patriarchy misses that. Now, it is true. When we start with the world, as guys, we have power so much more than women in so many ways. All the women in this room know this. Um, some of us as guys are not as aware of that as we should be. And we miss both that the first thing said about men and women in Scripture is that together they are created to rule over God's world. And that in Genesis 3, because of the fall, one of the curses is that the man rules over the woman. Patriarchy is located in the fall, not in creation, and yet it shows up relentlessly in conservative movements throughout history. Racism is not a minority report in conservative movements throughout history, because it starts with our experiences as well in the past. Like, there was always racism, so like, let's go back to racism. But racism and patriarchy have no place in God's creation. And if you are strongly inclined towards conservative stuff, you will constantly be tempted to misread creation on these things. On the liberal side, whether it's, you know, just to use a, a bizarre extreme example that I hope is a temporary one, when you hear people inclined to less say abolish the family, your friends when you go to college, your freshman year, they're your real family. The people that gave birth to you, they're just oppressive people. Your only job is to tell them how awful they are. That is a profound mistake. The family is given to us. Culture, work. But when somebody says, the ideal economically is that, and I'm not saying that there's one view on anything that's the right view. There is culture here that different cultures can go different ways. But when somebody says work should be abolished and we should all just be able to do whatever we want, I would say no culture has permission to do that because work is good. We are supposed to work let alone all this stuff that comes down the pipeline of the sexual revolution and says, let's just move into a future that's never yet been and doesn't look back to say sex belongs in a covenant relationship that mirrors horizontally what our relationship vertically with God is like. If you always lean liberal, you will regularly go the wrong direction, just like if you always lean conservative. And then third and finally, and most importantly, what I would mostly encourage you to do is primarily be something else altogether, Christians. And the Republican Party does not want you to be Christians. The Democratic Party does not want you to be Christians. If you understand that Jesus is the paradigm of creation, here is, I can give a million examples, but I'm just going to give the most obvious one. If Jesus is the paradigm of creation, then when your neighbor's needs are here and your desires are here, you should be willing to die to these so that this person could live into these. And neither the right or the left will encourage you to walk through the world like that. But walking into suffering for the sake of others around you is part of what it means to be a creature. You cannot love your neighbor unless you know the creator in, in the world that we are in. And so this slide, we'll go to it next week, but creation is ultimately it's good, it endures, but it's ultimately threatened by and is vulnerable to human sin, which is why... Uh, Psalm 104 ends the way it does. That when I was a kid, when I hit puberty, when I was a late middle school, early high school, like a lot of kids back then, I don't know if this is still true, my dad taught me how to shave. And he taught me to shave with the grain, not against the grain. When you lie, you are going against the grain of creation. When you are selfish, you are going against the grain of creation. When you say my desires, they are the center of the drama of existence, you are going against the grain. When you prioritize what you want and you ignore your neighbor, you are going against the grain of creation. When you look internally and you stop looking up to your creator to worship him, you are going against the grain of creation. Instead, what I would encourage you to do, I know there's some heavy stuff here for sure, is gratitude, thankfulness, curiosity, celebration, joy, praise, all things that creatures who know their creator do. G.K. Chesterton says this. I'll give them the final word. It is said that paganism is a religion of joy. Like, your non-Christian friends, they, they party way more than we do as Christians, right? Like, you want joy, go out there in the world, and that Christianity is a religion of sorrow. The really interesting thing is this, G.K. Chesterton says, that the pagan was, in the main, happier and happier as he approached the earth, but sadder and sadder as he approached the heavens. It is all gaiety about the facts of life, with no joy about its origin or its destiny. To the pagan, the small things are as sweet as the small brooks breaking out of the mountain, but the broad things are as bitter as the sea. When the pagan looks at the very core of the cosmos, he is struck cold and must quickly look away. It is profoundly true that the ancient world was actually more modern 
than it was Christian before Christianity came on the scene. The common bond is in the fact that both ancient people and modern people have both been miserable about existence, about everything. I freely grant that the pagans of old, like our non-Christian modern friends today, were only miserable about everything. They were quite jolly about everything else. The mass of humans have been forced to be joyful about the little things, but sad about the big ones. Nevertheless, I offer my last dogma defiantly. It is not native to human beings to be like this. A human is more himself or herself. A human is more humane when joy is the fundamental thing about them and grief is superficial. Let me get that backwards. Joy is the superficial thing for a couple of years before you fade to black forever. And sadness is the best one. Pessimism is at best an emotional half holiday. Joy is the uproarious labor by which all things live. Yet according to the apparent estate of humanity as seen by the pagan or the agnostic, this primary need of human nature can never be fulfilled. Joy ought to be expansive, but for the agnostic, it must be contracted. It must cling to only one small corner of the world your subjective experience inside of yourself. Christianity satisfies suddenly and perfectly humanity's ancient instinct for being the right way up in the cosmos. Satisfies it supremely in this, that by its creed, joy becomes something gigantic and sadness something special and weird. And so I would encourage you, with God at the end of the book of Job, mortals join the happy chorus that the morning stars began. But the song began before you. You're asked to join it, not to make it up. And so I encourage you to join it. Let's pray. Father, I'm always